0: Our sermon passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and then the first verse, chapter 3. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them, or on your phone, or as you can see it's printed for you. The this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. What is mankind that you are mindful of? In? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor, and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, was fitting That God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God gave. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, you speak. You speak to us right now by your Spirit, confirming to our hearts the good news of your gospel. So I pray in these moments, open the eyes of our hearts, to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus, to see your purpose for us in creation and redemption. Confirm to our hearts your love for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm an only child, and I'm a kind of classic only child. Mom, you don't get to say anything right now. I'm going to tell myself. But I'm a classic only child, which means that, in part, I've never been good at sharing. I haven't. I grew up in a family where I was the main attraction, at least in my own mind. So my toys were my toys. I didn't have to share them with anybody. My toys were my toys. Friends could come over and play, and they often did, but they were playing with my stuff. And eventually they went home and left my stuff with me, because it was mine. Now, my parents did a good job of curbing that a lot, I think, so I wasn't a complete terror to my friends, but I developed a clear understanding of things. This thing is mine. It belongs to me. And if I let you play with it, it's because I'm gracing you and allowing you to play with my stuff. It's mine. It's not yours. It's very clear it belongs to. Sharing is not an easy thing for me. Now, gratefully, one of the things we celebrate at Christmas is that's not true of God. That's not true of Jesus. That's why we actually have something to celebrate on Christmas. Not just some idea of peace on earth that never gets defined. But we celebrate that in Jesus we have a revelation of who God is and we discover that God is not someone who says, mine and holds everything to himself. he's a God of love who opens up that love to include us. He's a God of joy who has come to make his joy ours. He's a generous God. And that's what this passage is about. It's Jesus sharing. Not in the sense of sharing some toys, but a sharing in a much deeper way. A sharing that isn't just a kind gesture, but it's a transformative sharing that's done by Jesus. Now, there's two times in this passage, if you look back at them, where the word share is literally used. First in verse 14, it speaks about Jesus sharing in humanity so that by his death he might break the power of your holds the power of death, and free us from slavery to fear of death. And it's also used in that last verse we read, the first verse of chapter 3. It says, we share in what? A heavenly call. Which, is, which means to say we have a share in the glory that's talked about at the very beginning of our passage that belongs to Jesus, who's been resurrected from the dead and glorified in the presence of the Father. That heavenly calling that he talks about in verse 1 of chapter 3, that's what we share in because Jesus in verse 14 has shared in our humanity. So I want to look at both of these things a bit, that because Jesus shared in our humanity in every way, we can take heart that God's purpose for us To crown us with glory and honor. To cause us to be recipients of his love. That delight in that love. That that purpose will be accomplished. Because it already has been accomplished. in Jesus who stands with us. First let's consider the ways that Jesus shares in our humanity. Look with me again. uh, Verse uh, 10. Verse 10. It speaks in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting. That God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect. That word can also be translated as complete. A Complete Savior through what He suffered. Now you might be thinking, wait, what does it mean for Jesus, the Son of God, to be made perfect? I thought He was perfect. And if you're thinking that, good. That means you're recognizing a basic doctrine of Christianity, that Jesus is God and God is without fault. God is perfect. What the verse is talking about here is not that the eternal Son of God needed to be made perfect. It's that when He came and He took on flesh, He came as what? A little baby. He didn't just show up as a grown man. He started where we start. In fact, He started at conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He started where we start. And He went through life as we go through life. And He grew. In His life, He was made a complete representative of He was made our, as it says, our pioneer of our salvation. Kind of the one who goes first. He was the head. And he was made like us in every way.
1: But that didn't happen in an
0: instant. Because we are, as human beings, we don't become who we are in an instant. We live through time. We grow. We have experiences that shape us. And so when God came to earth as a human being, he did too. What the verse is talking about is that Jesus had to be made perfect as a representative for humanity. Earlier in Hebrews 2, which we looked at, he quotes, I, I wrote it wrong in the bullets, in not Psalm 18, Psalm 8, which speaks of why God created human beings in the first place. He created human beings to be crowned with glory and honor. That's the purpose for which God created human beings. In his image, to be reflections of his glory. And to live in this relationship with Him, the God of love and joy, where we are crowned with that love and joy, becomes this this, this cycle of receiving. That is what it means to be made as a human being, to be a receiver of God's grace. That's basic to what it means. So that's why we were created in the first place, to be crowned with glory and honor. Now, we live in a world. Where we don't see that. Selfish rebellion against God and sin has taken this original purpose way off track. Way off track. Way off track. And I don't just mean the individual sins that we commit. Scripture doesn't just talk about individual sins like transgressions, it does speak of that. But it also speaks of sin as this marring of our nature. Like we are created to be crowned with glory and honor, we are created to be in this relationship where we are receiving God's grace, but sin has marred who we are. And it has broken that connection. It has made us, uh, to use an image that Augustine in the 4th century and, and Martin Luther in the 16th often referred to, sin has made us like trees that have turned in on themselves. Trees are made to receive nourishment from what? Their roots, water in the ground, and from sunlight. Sin, what it does to us is it turns us in on ourselves and we're looking for that nourishment that we're supposed to receive from our roots, we're supposed to receive from the sun shining on us, we suddenly turn inward and we're looking at it from ourselves. But we just keep poisoning ourselves. We're closed off from the way we were made to exist. So that original purpose for which we created is taken off track, but God is still committed that He will have the final word. God is committed that we will be crowned with glory and honor. He will see it happen. How do we know that? Through Jesus. Jesus came, and as this passage talks about, He acts as the representative for a sense of humanity. He succeeds in the place where every human throughout history, before Him and after Him, has failed. He is a human being. Is obedient to the command of the Father. He is a human being is one who did not give in to the temptations of sin. Now in order for Jesus to be this representative, he had to be, become a human. It, it wasn't just something God could from heaven say, I want this to happen, and boom, it happened. Because the broken relationship happened from within humanity it had to be fixed from within humanity. And so the eternal son of God took on to himself human nature. And so when Jesus comes, it's not God arriving to find things out or just to have like an experience to see what it's like to live in his creation. At Christmas, we don't celebrate that God has an exploratory mission like he was on the Star Trek crew that's going where no man has gone before. It's not God trying to find stuff out when he got bored. It's not God as a zoologist who lives among chimpanzees to study their way of life. At Christmas we celebrate that God became man, so that He might live like us, that He might die like us, and that He might rise again from the grave, all on our behalf, for our benefit. And that explains the why of Him being, being uh, needing to be made perfect, so that He could represent us in every way. But how was He made perfect? Look at verse ten. Sisters suffer. Now, is it talking about the suffering on the cross? Yes, of course. This passage speaks a lot about death, the death of Jesus who was out without sin, who had not earned death himself. But that's not the only suffering that it's talking about. Because that's not the only kind of suffering we experience. Further down in verse 18, it speaks of Jesus being tempted in every way as a type of suffering. And that this being tempted is the reason why he can help us when we are tempted. Because he has shared our humanity. We suffer and so he came to enter into the places where we suffer. Now there's an ever present temptation I think. We see this when people make movies of, of, uh, of Jesus. If you've ever watched any of the movies of Jesus the vast majority, majority of them I think or our pictures portraits when people want to paint Jesus they paint him almost like this stoic emotionless person going through uh, the motions of looking and acting. Human. And so he goes through and he's kind of not bothered by stuff, right? He goes through and he's peaceful. He's a soft word for everybody. And I think it seeps into the way we talk about Jesus. Think about a song that we haven't sung as a church on purpose Away in a Manger. We sing it every Christmas, right? It's not a bad song. But what's that in the first few lines? Away in a Manger. Uh, the little, the baby, what is it? The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. We can't even, we're uncomfortable with the idea that, <laughs> that Jesus would be a colicky baby that cried and annoyed Mary and Joseph and kept them up at night. But surely that happened. That's what every baby does. But I think we're uncomfortable with it because we can't get mind around it. But that's not the Jesus we need in the New Testament. It's not. Read through the Gospels. We need a Jesus who's fully here. A Jesus that when he's on this earth experiences the trials of difficulty with family. A family who misunderstands him and tries to squash what he's doing. We need a Jesus who experiences the bitterness of betrayal by a close friend. We need a Jesus who experiences loneliness and frustration. It's remarkable the number of times in the gospel where it says that Jesus had to go to be in solitude. He had to go to, quote, desolate places. Because he needed to get away. He needed to get away and pray. We need a Jesus who weeps. A Jesus who is fully human in every way. The comfort of this is to know that Jesus is not far off from our suffering. He's not distant. There aren't sections of our life and our story and our experience that are closed off from God. It can feel that way. That there's whole parts of our life that are so dark that we can't imagine light shining into it. But God's not distant. Jesus doesn't just know our experience like he knows facts in a book. He doesn't just know about us. He knows us because he is one of us. And that's the fundamental good uh, news of one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Verse 11 here in chapter 2. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. I don't have a tattoo, but if I get one, that might be like top of the list. The one who makes people the one who is holy, and makes people holy, and those being made holy, me, you, same family. Same last name, same family. The situation as it is now is that Jesus and we are of the same family. He's made it perfect as a representative for us and his experience as he talks about suffering. And he's identified with us in our difficulties to the point that he is family. But Jesus' identification for us, his sharing in our humanity, is more than just a compassionate ear. It's not just Jesus jumping into the hole with us so we have a shoulder to cry on. Because while he's one of us, he's not just one of us. He's not just one among many. In the midst of suffering He's our representative that goes before us And so now that he's of the same family with us If we want to know God's will for us Where this is all going We look to Jesus as the passage talks about And what do we see? What do we see? We see a Jesus that is now As it says in verse 9 Crowned with glory and honor The power of death because it could not hold him, the power of death. Not just the moment of death in the future when we're of old age or whenever we die, the power of death that reaches throughout the entirety of our life, even the fear of death that he talks about, is gutted of his power. Jesus is raised victorious, he is crowned with glory and honor, given the name that is above every name, made Lord, and we are raised And then the words in the New Testament Seated with him And our life is hidden in him And our treasure is kept By him for us This is good news friends In coming to be one of us He's not dragged down It's not It's not he jumped in the river To try to save us from drowning And we dragged How many times have we heard that terrible story Of a kid drowning A parent, an adult, jumps in to try to save them, and they get caught in the current and push the kid up. They can save the kid, but can't save themselves. That's not what's going on with Jesus. He's not dragged down in becoming one of us. We are lifted up. We are lifted up. Look at the way it speaks about in verse uh, um, thirteen, which begins our second section. He shared in our humanity, so we share in his victory. Actually, uh, back at verse 11. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name, speaking to God, to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. He's not ashamed to call us family. And not only to call us family, but to shout it out loud for everybody to hear. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. The book, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying these, are in the, these words are in the mouth of Jesus. And he didn't just come to share humanity and then try to hide it away because we are a shameful representation. Because we're black sheep and He's kind of, we're the weird cousins that show up at Christmas time for dinner. And you don't really want to talk to them because they're odd and you don't know what's going on in their lives. No, this is Jesus who has become family with us who is making us holy, who is shouting it out for everybody to hear, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is my family. Verse 12 and 13 picture Jesus doing two things. The first one, one notice, it says that he will sing God's praises in the midst of his family. The other thing it says that he will not only say, here I am, but he says, here I am in the children God has given me. In other words, Jesus does not stand alone. He brings us with him, that we stand with him he identifies with us so that we might identify with Him. Now, that first quote that will declare your name in the midst of the assembly, my brothers and sisters, that's actually from Psalm 22, which is interesting. Because when Jesus is dying on the cross and He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the very first verse of Psalm 22. Same Psalm. Same song. Psalm 22. It begins with that this cry of anguish of Jesus on the cross experiencing the wrath of God against sin. But the good news is that Psalm 22 starts there, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't end there. It does not end there. After the deep cry of anguish and the perceived rejection by God, that psalm eventually sounds a note of hope. It was originally written by King David. But it's the psalm that Jesus reached for in the moment of his deepest anguish. God will prove Himself again as He has in the past as one who vindicates and rescues, rescues His people. It begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But near the end of the psalm, written by David, we read that David fully expects deliverance from the Lord. Which is why he says, After I'm vindicated, I want to declare your praise to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the assembly. He looks forward to a day when his perceived rejection by God will lead to him standing in the midst of his family, speaking of how God has delivered him. Why this is noteworthy here, why the book of Hebrews reaches for this, is because here, these words are found in the mouth of Jesus. It's It's from Psalm 22, yes, but it's no longer that cry of anguish. Jesus seated on high, Jesus crowned with glory and honor, is no longer saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will never cry that out again because it's finished. But now, having defeated death, having risen from the grave, he's employed in this, declaring God's name to his family, singing God's praises in the assembly. The reason I'm pointing this out is because this is what this means that here, in this room, today, in our worship, Jesus Christ is not only present with us in this assembly, He's also singing among us and singing with us. In Hebrews 2, it points to the truth that the worship leader this morning is not me. The worship leader in our midst that makes this actually matter is Jesus. He inhabits he declares this morning in that call to worship, in that assurance of pardon, and these words right now, in the benediction at the end. He declares to us the praises of God. He is our worship. Now I spoke a few weeks ago about the idea of a priest. priest represents God to people and people to God. When Jesus does that as our great high priest. And so not only is Jesus in our midst declaring God's praises, not only is he the one speaking on the call to worship, the assurance of pardon, the benediction, he's also the one that makes sure our prayers are heard as well. We can be confident that we're, we're heard. Because he stands as our high priest to represent us to God, not just God to us. So our prayers are prayed in the name of Jesus. And they are heard in the name of Jesus. Not because we carry a bunch of merit, not because we pray beautifully enough or long enough for God to hear us, but because we are heard ever and always by Jesus. And our songs are heard and are beautiful in the ears of God, not because we're great singers, and we actually are. We have some really great singers in this church, but our songs are on key. Our songs are beautiful in the ears of God because Jesus sings in our lives. He sings with us. He's like the really good tenor in the bad country choir that lifts everybody up. That's Jesus. He's identified with us, but again, we don't drag him down. He lifts us up. In Christ, even our off key, joyful noises are purified in the glorious praise to God. Now, time doesn't permit. I won't dive deep, but the second set of quotes where he speaks, I put my trust in him, and here I am, and the children God has given me. They're from Isaiah chapter 8. And it communicates to us what we're told in verse 11. He's not ashamed to call us family, but He's pleased to stand with us by His side. Now, if we're honest, we might scoff at this. We might question the wisdom of Jesus being glad to identify with us. But this is the kind of Savior that Jesus is. He's not ashamed to come to us, we who in so many ways are lowly and dirty and stained with sin, because He will not be polluted by us. He will not. Rather, we are cleansed by Him, And so there's deep, dark recesses of the sin in our heart. Jesus goes there. And grace, like always, like water, runs to the deepest part. But in going there, he is not stained. We are cleansed. If you go through the Gospels, you'll see often Jesus goes and he touches people he's not supposed to touch. He goes to places that would make everybody else, according to the the laws of Leviticus, unclean. But Jesus going there, he makes those places clean. He makes those people clean. That is what he does. Because the holiness of Jesus is not one that obliterates us in our sin. The holiness of Jesus is a holiness that makes holy and that creates relationships. Our sin, even at its most powerful point, has no power over him. And that's what it speaks about in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in him in He said that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. By death what? Was he overcome by the power of sin? No, by his death he broke the power of the devil. Evil is not just this faceless, purposeless darkness that overwhelms us. In pointing to the devil here, there's a purposeful personality driving the evil in this universe. It is set to frustrate the purposes of God. We were created to be crowned with glory and honor. The devil hates that. So he seeks to frustrate those purposes. And here's the bad news for us, actually, for human beings, is that the devil is armed with good material. You know, one of the most common uh, most common uh, pictures of Satan in the Bible is an attorney. Now, I'm not, I'm not anti-lawyer or anything, <laughs> but it pictures him as an attorney who goes and keeps arguing to God like, You shouldn't love them. You shouldn't be set on your purposes to the crown them with glory and honor because look at all of this. Now, it also says that the devil is the father of lies The father of liars But the scary thing for us Is the devil is like a district attorney That has a good case Against us it really does And so if we're picturing it like a courtroom The devil can walk into God's presence And say here's the 700 reasons Why they should be obliterated By you that have just happened In the last week He's armed with real material Because we're not just victims of sin. We're perpetrators. And death. Human death is the paycheck that sin earns. But Jesus comes. Pleased to identify with us. And in the ultimate form of that identification. He takes on sin. He becomes sin for us. And he experiences death that he has not known. And the result of this. He frees us from our slavery. To the fear of death. He serves as an atonement for the sins of the people. He serves as our high priest. And we've talked about this before. high priest in the Israelite religion, the, the entire worship system in the temple and the tabernacle was really tenuous. It was really fragile because it depended on the high priest being pure themselves. So if they were a really wicked guy, it was bad news until the guy died. Because <laughs> then you were like, I don't actually know if these, uh, these, these Sacrifices are 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 doing anything because the guy that's supposed to stand before before God is a mess, and not only that, even if he was a good guy, you hope he's got a good memory because there's lots of steps in the sacrifices. There's lots of precise prayers that have to be prayed. Lots of things that have to happen. It was all tenuous. But when Jesus becomes our high priest, he's one that is good. One that doesn't need to keep offering sacrifices because his death was a perfect once for all sacrifice that covers the enormity of our sin always. And he's one that will not die. And so the grace that is won for us, him standing in our stead between us and God, we don't have to worry that tomorrow the high priest will die and we'll get a replacement who's terrible. We don't. Jesus ever lives to intercede, to stand with us and for us. He is our high priest always. And so he shares in our humanity, becoming like us in every way, becoming family, becoming one for us. If you hear anything, hear this. We do not drag him down. He pulls us up. He lifts us up. He satisfies God's wrath against our sin. And so there's no more wrath for you if you wonder what God thinks about you, even in your greatest wickedness. There is no wrath left to be poured out against your sin that has been absorbed and taken on by Jesus. All that is left for you is the fatherly care of God. Period. He delights in you. He is going to crown you for you. And that's the goal of all this, that he would bring us to glory. It speaks of bringing many sons and daughters to what? To glory. It speaks of, in 3, uh, one of sharing in the heavenly calling. That we might share in what rightfully belongs to Jesus. That all that is his by right becomes ours by grace. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's the good news of him being our high priest. Because everything he earns in his perfect life, everything that is, that being crowned with glory and honor, that being seated on high at the right hand of the Father, that's ours by Christ. That's ours. And we have in Him an inheritance that cannot fade. He shares in our humanity that He might share with us all that belongs to Him. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? I want to read again that last verse of our passage. Therefore, Holy brothers and sisters. Notice it doesn't just say brothers and sisters. Now in Christ we are set apart. We are made clean. We are holy. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix
1: your thoughts on
0: Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. We're one day removed from Christmas. We're still in the throes of it. We've got the trees in the back. It's still Christmas for all intents and purposes. And the economy of Christmas is nostalgia, right? We watch the same movies every year. We watch It's a Wonderful Life. We watch White Christmas. We watch Rudolph. It's nostalgia. We talk about Christmas' past. The economy of Christmas is nostalgia. and Most of us have Christmas traditions. We reminisce. We remember. In some ways, we might long for simpler times. The simpler times of childhood or maybe Christmas' past when there were More loved ones gathered around the table than there are now. We look back. That's a big part of what Christmas is. And we do that when we think of Jesus too. When we read the gospel stories of his nativity. We remember the angels announcing the shepherds. Which we just read. We remember the song of Mary. We remember peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It's a looking back. But I encourage you. Here one day after Christmas. To look forward. Not just back. But to look forward. Let's not only just look back at the Christ child, the baby Jesus, with the promises announced. Let's also look forward to the victorious Jesus, with the promises secured in every way. Our faithful high priest, who has made atonement for our sins. Not just baby Jesus in a manger. And not just Jesus on the cross. Or even not just Jesus resurrected and victorious from the grave. Let's look forward to where Jesus is taking all of this. The Jesus who even right now is not ashamed to be called one of us, who's not at a distance, who right now is singing in our midst, who's about to serve us here at this table of his body and blood. The Jesus who's not afraid to say, Here I am, and the children God has given me. The Jesus who promises to bring us to glory, and let's fix our eyes on Jesus, not just looking back and looking for Because he's the one who can give, give us hope and assurance. Jesus, who is the one who is able to give us that which he promises. Who will crown us with glory.